0: Chapter Forty-Eight of Kit and Kitty by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Forty-Eight: The Duchess. All these things compelled me to think about them because they were so different from what might have been expected. When first I lost my wife and knew that I had been robbed of her, I made up my mind for savage work, and nothing could be too wild for me. THE GREATEST WRONG THAT MAN CAN DO TO MAN HAD BEEN DONE TO ME, FOR A STAB TO THE BODILY HEART IS BETTER THAN THE DESTRUCTION OF FAITH AND LOVE. BUT THE CARE FOR MY DEAR WIFE'S GOOD NAME, WHICH WOULD HAVE BEEN BLASTED IF EVER IT GOT abroad THAT SHE HAD ELOPED WITH THE MONEY, AS WELL AS MANY OTHER TENDER THOUGHTS, HAD KEPT ME QUIET AND CONDUCED ME TO STOP FROM ANY ACTS OF VIOLENCE. AND THIS INSTINCT OF TRUE LOVE PROVED QUITE RIGHT, as all will confess who care to know the end of it. Straightened as I was with my own cares, and sometimes buried in them, I could not help trying to lift if it were but the corner of the burden imposed by heaven upon a man a thousandfold better and more noble. The only excuse I could make to myself for the different way in which he bore his grief was that he was bound to do it as a clergyman, and, being so old, must be getting used to it, but I knew in my heart that this was paltry stuff and that the true reason of the difference was that he was a large man with faith in God while I was a little one relying upon self. There was no way before me to cure that, for no man can set up his ladder on a cloud. Still it did me good to know that he had found staple support and was steadfast upon heaven. Mr. Golightly was not only a Christian but a gentleman, Far as I was below his rank in life he never let me feel the difference, either by word or turn of manner or even by tone of silence. He never inquired into my affairs, though no indifference prevented it, and nothing was further from his mind than the thought that he was doing good to me. Being of a nature which requires something to love, I loved this man and never could see anything to laugh at in him, as my uncle Cornelius made believe to do. I became restless if any day went by without my seeing him, and I could not sleep in my two chairs, however tired I might be, without the remembrance of his Good night, God bless you, Kit, which he always gave me in a gentle voice and with a look which itself was a blessing. And now I had been admitted to the acquaintance of his darling, whom he loved as I loved Kitty, but with a holier sense and fear. She was lying on a horsehair sofa, in his poorly furnished room, for he was poor, as a good man is nearly always, somehow, and I never shall forget the look she gave me from her weary eyes, quite as if the depth of kindness were enhanced by its want of power, and she rose up one wasted arm, and offered me a hand just like a white kid-glove that has been drawn off. "'You have been very good to father.' She looked at my sunburnt face as if she would like to remember it somewhere else. And what lovely grapes you bring me! See how greedy I have been! It was as much as I could do to keep my eyes from being like grape stalks, and I tried to drive my sorrow inwards by thinking that all of it was wanted there, but it would not do, and I turned away. What she wants is outdoor air, I said as soon as we left the room, and her father asked me what I thought and I said it more to hide my own distress than from any hope at all. Outdoor air without exercise, and with very gentle movement. Sims, the flyman, is very good. Her father's lips trembled as he spoke, and he tried to make a smile of it. He knows that we cannot afford much carriage hire, and he comes at half price when he has nothing else to do. But since the other spring broke, she can hardly bear it, she fainted twice the last time he went. what the river, the water, the Thames,' I said, almost fearing to make a suggestion so stale. "'What can be more easy than the gliding of a boat? Is that even too much for her?' "'Bessie has never tried it yet,' said the anxious father, pondering much. "'When I was at Oxford I loved the river, but I have not found time for it for many years, and I fear it would be cold upon the water.' It is much more likely to be too hot, I answered with some wonder at the clear unselfishness of this man who loved the river yet lived upon its banks without ever taking boat for fear of sliding duty. The sun strikes very strong upon the river, but after four o'clock it is delightful. I know a boat that would exactly suit her. She can lie upon the cushions in the stern. The weather is beautifully calm and warm. Will you let me try it? He was loth to consent without leave from Dr. Sippets, which, of course, was right enough, but the doctor said it was the very thing he was going to recommend that very day, and as soon as the poor girl heard of it, she would scarcely hear of any other thing. We had an old boat of our own, but it was not nice enough for her, so I went as far as Shepperton for the one of which I had spoken to him. This was a very commodious affair, and the name painted on it was the Duchess obliterating the old name Emmy Moggs, for a genuine duchess had been in it, while staying for her health at Walton. Phil Moggs was the owner, and he raised his price as soon as he had painted out his good wife's name, and he thought so much of this boat now, though described by rivals as the washing tub, that he always insisted on going with it. However, he was not a bad sort of fellow, though belonging henceforth by his own account to the higher aristocracy. The cheaper men called him the Duke, and he accepted the title without ill will. Regardless of expense, I hired Boat and him, under private agreement that Mr. Golightly should pay him half a crown and suppose that all, and we brought the lady in a bath-chair to the bank, and shipped her without any difficulty— and it was worth a lot of money to behold her fair young face, delicate with dreams of heaven, taking the flush of the firmer air, and gradually kindling with joys of earth. She looked at every tree we glided past, and every fair garden upon either bank, and every feathered bend of hill and hollow, as if they were coming to her in a dream, yet so that she could make friends of them. At first her dear father clasped her hand as if she could glide more smoothly so, but soon she became more independent and wanted both hands to point out her delight. Then the tears of kind pleasure came into his eyes, and he turned away and looked at the world for himself and thanked God for this little touch of happiness. "'Shall we rest a minute beneath this willow?' he said as the sun drew along the stream and the myriad twinkles of bright air seemed to be dancing to the silver cord of waves. Then we slid into the silence of a cool arcade, and I said, It is high time for Moggs to have some beer. Mindful of this prime needed of every British waterman, I had brought a little stone jar for my uncle's tap, and thinking that the savor of this fine beverage might not be agreeable to our fair freight, I landed on the island— with a wink to the duke, and he very kindly followed me. The pastor knew well that his flock must be fed, and he extended his knowledge to the neighboring parish. There was lemonade and strawberries for the weaker vessels, and while they remained afloat and entered into these, Moggs and I sat behind a bush and considered what was good for us. I suppose you don't often come Sunbury way, I said, just to lend the little tongue to tooth work for I had bought some bread and a hunk of bacon. Nobs goes mostly up the river, Chertsey and Lalam and the mead and the likes, Mr. Moggs replied with his knife upon the bone. Ain't been your way pretty nigh three months. Ah, but you had a nice time then. Very fine ale at the flowerpot, Moggs. Well, so there he. But quite a good nigher are home, and I likes my drop of beer without no water in it. "'Here's your good health, Mr. What's your name "'Thank you, Mogg's, and the same to you. "'But I don't understand about water in your beer. "'Well, did ever you see a young woman "'cry enough to fill a bucket, let alone a boat? "'I pretty nigh wanted one of them tarpaulins. "'Just lost her daddy,' the old man said to me. "'But he told me not to speak of it, no more I did. "'But I found out arterwards all about it. "'Seems she come from Molsey though I took her to the other side. From Molsey? I know a good many of the people there. The only man who died there this summer, to my knowledge, was an old bachelor by the name of Powell. What was this young woman's name? Watson, or uh, Wilson, I won't be certain which. But never mind, I dare say she's all right by now. The more they takes on at first, the sooner they get shut. But you took her on our side of the river, as you said. ''Did you go to fetch her? What day was it? What was she like? Who sent you for her? Where did you land her? How came you? ''Look here, Mr. What's your name, you hires my boat and you hires me to row, but not to go on about other people's business. But it may be my own business, Philip Mogg's, and you may get into desperate trouble by refusing to tell me all you know of it. ''Not a bit feared of that?'' the old man answered. I haven't owed hundreds to get into trouble with too much clacking, but never one the other way. He shut up his mouth and looked like an old villain of a horse I had seen at Sam Henderson's, who had pits above his eyes and ears that stuck back like a guncock, and a nose that was as wiry as a twisted toasting folk. This was a man who would whistle on his own nails to warm them, but not to warn another man from going down a weirpool. Well... "'I said, never mind, I don't suppose it matters, "'for I was able to master my manners now after three months of endurance. "'Only somebody has a bit of money upon something "'and you might cut in for it if you give a hand. "'But I'll be bound you know nothing about it after all. "'You fellows who are always on the water dream all sorts of stuff "'just as I did this afternoon. "'And, mister, I'll just keep dreaming to myself.' I did hear of something queer down your way, but least said, soonest mended. Time to be shovin' off again. On the homeward row, I did my best to drive out of my mind all thought of this ancient mariner and his story, and he feigned not to be thinking of it, though I caught his wrinkled eyelids dropping suddenly at the sudden glances which I cast upon him. He was watching me narrowly when I looked away and I thought it likely that he would land again when he had discharged us and try to learn all about me in the village, for we at Sunbury knew but little of the Shepperton people at that time. Looking on it rather as a goose-green sort of place, benighted and rustic and adverse to good manners, Shepperton, without equal ground, despised us as a set of half cockneys and truckling for the money of London, which they very nobly contemned because they got so little of it. If anything exciting came to pass at Sunbury, these odd people shrugged their shoulders and talked about Bow Street and Newgate and the like as if they belonged to Middlesex and we to London. However, there can be no doubt which is the finer village. I was much dissatisfied with myself when I came to think of it for allowing as I did this boatman's story to dwell upon my mind and even the fair invalid in the stern lost many little due attentions. But happily she fell fast asleep, being sweetly lulled by the soft fine air and the dreamy melody of waters. Her long eyelashes lay flat in the delicate hollows of her clear white cheeks, where a faint tinge of rose began to steal, like the breath of a baby angel. How beautiful she looks, I whispered to her father as he gazed at her, and he answered, Yes, how can I bear it? It is the beauty of a better world. But he was in livelier mood about her when we took her gently home and she rose from the chair with a rally of strength and said, Well, Bessie, how do you feel now? As if I wanted a good tea, she answered, and as if I never could thank this gentleman for the pleasure he has given us. I wondered whether in trying ever so feebly to give pleasure I might have won without earning some great good for myself, and off I went, after proper words, to follow the course of the Duchess. In a minute or two I had gained a spot which commanded the course of the river, and there I perceived that the unmistakable Moggs, instead of hastening home, was resting on his oars to watch the bank and make sure that no one was watching him. I slipped into a quiet niche, which made me think of Kitty, for here I had seen her surveying the flood in the days of my early love for her. It had been a happy place that day. Would it help me once again? Presently Moggs made up his mind, if happily it had been wavering, and pulling into the evening shadows sought a convenient landing place. Then he fashioned the Duchess to a stump, and stiffly made his way towards that snug little holstery, the Blue Anchor, Favored by most of our waterside folk. "'That will do,' thought I. "'He has conquered his contempt of Sunbury. "'He is going to pick up all he can about me. "'There must be something in it. "'And now for the Molsey story. "'Without delay I returned to our village "'and through it hastened to the landing "'where our ancient boat was kept. "'There was no fear of meeting Moggs down here, "'for he was a good half-mile above.' Tulling leisurely downstream, I began to think how stupid we had been in our inquiries, at least if my present idea proved correct. But the policemen to whom we had entrusted the first part of the search must bear the blame of this stupidity. They had not failed to make inquiry among the boatmen, and along the river, although their attention had been directed chiefly to the roads and railway, but they had assumed throughout that the fugitive must have gone towards London, and as regarded the Thames they had only cared to inquire much downstream. But up the river there was as yet no railway and no important road, and with their usual density they had searched but very vaguely hereabout. At Molsey I had friends who knew every item of what happened there, and they soon convinced me that no young woman weeping for her father's recent loss was likely to have quitted that good village, east or west, at the time in question. Therefore, Phil Moggs had been deceived, whether by his passenger or others, as to that part of the story. I was greatly surprised to find how little the general mind of Molsey seemed to be concerned about my case. Few seemed even to have heard of it, and the few who did know something knew it all amiss, or had put it so by their own imaginations. Indeed, I could scarcely have guessed that the story as recounted there had aught to do with my poor humble self. Even Uncle Corney, great in fame at Sunbury and even Hampton, was but a pinch of sand flung from a balloon to these heavy dwellers in Surrey. End of chapter 48